Somebody say, God is good. You believe it? Okay. All right. Let's get into his word. Um, God is a God of newness. Hopefully all of us can understand and agree with that statement. He's a God of newness. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it the way he deals with his people. Um, he, he provided manna for the people of God in the desert. New every day. The Bible says his mercies come fresh every day. Um, a, a new deposit of his mercy and grace is poured out on us day by day by day. It says that the path of the just gets brighter and brighter. There's this continual newness, unfolding of, of greater and, and more as we walk with him. It says that um, we're, by the Spirit of God, we're being changed, transformed from glory to glory, more and more into his image. There's, there's this theme of newness about our God. Um, it says that this is the day the Lord has made. He gives us life, but he only gives it to us one day at a time. Yesterday is over. We hopefully can learn from it. Hopefully we were blessed by it. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. All we have is this day. This is a new day. Every day that comes to us. And in that newness, there's possibility. There's, there's potential. There's all this, this exciting, these exciting things. Um, he, he designs, not only is God a God of newness, but he designs the Christian life to be filled with newness. We're to be walking. Romans 6, 4. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. That's to be our daily experience as Christians. That's to be the, the climate in which we live, that, that we walk, we're walking out this newness of life. And the focus of the series that we've been in, um, When God Moves, has, has been that reality that we serve a God who's active. We, we serve a God who, who's not removed from us, who's not um, stagnant um, in his dealings with us, but that he's, he's active. And in his activity, he brings newness each and every day, freshness each and every day, growth, um, encouragement, um, continually as we seek and walk with him day by day by day. The prophet Isaiah says this in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah. He says, remember not the former things. Don't consider things of old. In other words, forget yesterday. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And it springs forth now if you'll catch it, if you'll look for it, if you'll find it. I'm doing this new thing. I make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is a God of motion. God's a God of activity. From Genesis to Revelation, God is active. God is moving continually. In every page on your Bible, you'll find God moving. And he's moving today in your life, whether you recognize it or not. God is moving today in your life. He moves in our lives in a general sort of way. The Bible says he's, he upholds everything together by the word of his power. That means we are existing right now. You are taking your next breath. You are inhaling and exhaling your next breath because he's holding it together. Because he's keeping it all together. Because he is, is in charge of the universe and he makes sure that it's, it's unfolding properly. He makes sure that the, that the planets are aligned properly. He makes sure that the earth is rotating at just the right speed, not too slow, not too fast. He makes sure that, that gravity remains in place with just the right pull. He makes sure he's upholding all things by the word of his power. Listen, if God 
turned his attention away for a nanosecond of time, it'd be all over. It'd be over. This earth would just implode. So God is moving, sometimes in ways we don't recognize in this general sense, but he also moves specifically. We, we love that verse in Jeremiah 29 that says that God speaks. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, to, to do good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. And we love it because it's true. And we love it because it shows that God is specifically involved, not in life, but involved in your life. He says he has a plan for your life. Not just our life. He has a plan for your life. He has an unfolding of his purposes and will. He's moving in your life. Now, why is that so important? Why does God move? Why does he have to move in our lives? Why does he make it so specific? Why does it seem that God deals with us in such a personal, personal way? Well, quite simply, it's because if he didn't move, we wouldn't. I hate to say that about us, but if he didn't, we wouldn't. God is the initiator and the sustainer of your relationship with him. Not that we don't pursue, not that we don't spend time with him, but understand he is always at the root. He is, we cooperate with him. But the, the initiator and the sustainer of our relationship with the Lord is the Lord. It's not you. Even your pursuit of God is just an overflow. It's a result of his pursuit of you. We love him because he what? First loved us. What does that tell? That means we, we wouldn't love him if he didn't love us. If he didn't start this thing, we wouldn't get on board. We wouldn't be on board. Any spiritual advancement that you make in your walk with God is because God is moving in your relationship. It's It's him. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, he who began a good work in you, that good work in you was not your big idea someday. He began it. If you're a son or a daughter of God today, he began it. He pursued you. He sought after you. It wasn't your big idea. He began this good work and says he'll continue to perform it. So he doesn't just save us and walk away, or he doesn't just save us and say, now figure it out. He continues to perform, and we don't know how to be Christians. Hmm. If he doesn't unfold it in our lives, he is the sustainer and, the, and the, the initiator of our relationship with him. See, God knows something about us. He knows that we have this certain tendency, and it's not, it's not a good one. And it's not unique to us. We can trace it all the way back to the early church when, when Paul was admonishing the, the church in Galatia. He said that we, this, our tendency is that we, what we begin with this, in the spirit, we try to complete in the flesh. And we've all done it. And we've all been guilty of it. We, we've had those times where we're touched by the supernatural and it's real. But then we take what's supernatural, and we try to walk it out. We try to make it fit so that we can accomplish it, complete it, grow in it in a very natural way of our, of our own strength, of our own energy, of our own understanding. We've all had those great spiritual highs. Um, when, when I was doing youth ministries, we had a, a large summer camp program. Some of you here were attendants there. And, and we're young people then, <laughs> then. 
Or maybe you, you went on a, a, a retreat at some point in your life or a spiritual growth conference at some point in your life, and, and you know that spiritual high, and, and your life is, is touched by the presence of God, and, and you, make, you, you, you renew your covenant with him, or you make promises to him, or God be, does new works in you, and, and, and what happens two weeks later? Suddenly there's, there's this... this this change that takes place. Suddenly what was so real now has become very common, has become very um, warm, has become very um, almost distant from us because we don't naturally reach for the divine and stay there. What we do is we naturally reach for the status quo. That's where we're most comfortable in ourselves, we seek sameness, routine, repetition. As much as we want to think ourselves to be spontaneous, we really don't, even if we want it, we still seek sameness. That's where we're most um, comfortable because that's where we feel most in control. When, when things are the same, when things are within reach, when things stay within the borders in which we, that we understand and that we create, even though we like to think we're spontaneous, we really naturally will just seek sameness. Have you noticed? I was thinking about this point that that, that reality isn't in anybody's marriage vows. I promise that I'm just going to be the same. I promise that what you got right now is as good as it's going to get. Or this is the high point. <laughs> That's not in anybody's marriage vows. But it's true about us. We seek status quo. We seek sameness. And we do it, we can do it in our relationship with God. The Lord's given me a couple, couple interesting illustrations in this message. And I hope you'll just bear with me. But we become, if we're not on guard and aware of his movement in our lives, we become memory foam Christians. Anyone, anyone know what memory foam is? Memory foam is? You may have a bed, you know, or, or, or whatever, uh, of the stuff they call memory foam. It's really kind of weird. I, I laid in a, when years, a few years back, we were looking for mattresses, and we went to the store, you know, and I, I laid in a memory foam, and it was an interesting experience. But what we do as Christians sometimes is, is we set up our lives and we find a level of faith. We find a level in our relationship with the Lord that seems to fit our form and then just sort of sink into it. And we stay there. And we remain there. And we like it because the whole thing is set up and structured and designed for my maximum comfort. You don't have to raise your hand if you understand that, but I know you understand that. Because we all understand that. This maximum comfort. We, we, we establish this, this, this fit of who God is and where he works and how he works in our lives. And we just sort of sink into it. And, and so I'm, I'm good with just with, with coming to church when it's convenient. I'm, I'm good with, with, and I'm content with my, my 10 minutes of, of, of devotion and prayer time every day. 
I'm, I'm settled with that. I'm most comfortable if I don't have to be too vocal about sharing my faith with, with anyone else or talking about my faith out loud or, or praying with another individual. I, I find that place, see, in my walk with the Lord that just feels good. Now, there's a danger. Memory foam, if you, ever, if you understand anything about it, it, it's hard to get out of. I laid in that bed in the showroom floor, and it felt good for a moment. And then it was like, okay, now let me try something else. And I could hardly get up because what, what, what was a place of comfort be, became a crater. <laughs> and you have to, like, you're looking for a rope to try and pull yourself out of this thing. But we can do that in our walk with the Lord. And it's not unique to us. Do you remember the account in Scripture on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John's there with Jesus, and then suddenly there's Moses and there's Elijah. And what did, what did the disciples, what was their plan? This is great. This is glorious. Let's build three temples for each of you and just stay here. What about all the other people? Let's just stay here. This is, this is what we like. See, we're, it's in us to, to just try to settle in. How many are thankful? All of us should be thankful. I'm thankful today that God takes the lead in our lives. He takes the lead in our relationship. Because if he didn't push, if he didn't nudge, if he didn't promote, if he didn't call, if he didn't urge, we wouldn't move. Sorry, don't get mad at me. But in your heart, I know you're saying Amen. All right, let me read our text for today. And there's a couple of them, and they're going to take a minute. But um, we're going to start in Matthew 11, if you have your Bibles. If you're at home and you don't have your Bibles, find it. And, and we're going to read the first 11 verses of Matthew 11. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, John the Baptist he's talking about, when John heard in prison, John's in prison, about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you he hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings in houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I'll tell you, more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, let's go to Exodus. I just want to read our text as a foundation. So remember, try to remember these accounts. They're well-known passages. Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Moses said, and you know this account in Scripture, please 
show me your glory. Moses is before the Lord. He says, show me your glory. And he, the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he said, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. Cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Father, I pray you bless your word today. I pray you anoint my words. I pray you anoint our hearing. I pray, Father, that you move among us, move in our hearts, move in our minds, invade our space. Draw us closer to yourself in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When, when God moves. Anybody want God to move in your life? Amen. First point. The greatest hindrance to a new move of God is the previous move. All right? Let me unpack that for you, but if you're taking notes, write it down. It's important. And it's true whether we're talking about the church or we're talking about an individual believer's life. That the greatest hindrance oftentimes to a new move of God is the last move of God, the former move of God. Now, we know about John the Baptist. He's this radical preacher. He's out in the wilderness, and he's loud, and he's boisterous, and he's, he's probably not the guy you'd bring over for you know, a, a formal dinner. He, he's, he's sort of wild in his, in his appearance and in his approach to life. He, he wears a camel hair um, coat. He has a leather belt strapped down. He, he lives on honey and locusts. That's his, that's his daily diet. Um, he, he's bringing this hard message of, of repentance. He's calling Israel as a nation back to repent of, of dead works, of, of sinful works, sinful lifestyles. Um, he, he's, not, he's not politically correct in his preaching. He's, his goal is not to just gain an audience or, or tickle their ears or, or be popular. But he brings the voice of God. People leave the cities and, and flock to the desert to hear this man because he is speaking the voice of God that they haven't heard for a while. God is moving through this messenger. And Jesus has great respect for John the Baptist. We see that in, in the dialogue here, in the text, that Jesus affirms his ministry. He says, when you went to the wilderness, what did you go to see? And he's bringing out the, the uniqueness and the, and the, and the uh, anointing that was on this, this man of God out in, out in the wilderness. And he affirmed his calling. He says that this is the guy. You, you know your Old Testament scriptures. This is the one when scripture says that I'm going to send a messenger. And he's going to prepare the way of the Messiah for the Messiah to come. They knew the prophecy, and Jesus is saying, this is the guy. So he affirmed his calling, and he affirmed his authority. He says, not only is he a prophet, he's more than a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He's the greatest, and, and ultimately, he's the final prophet. And with John, we find the conclusion of the, of the Old Covenant. Now, in these two ministries overlapping, there's a picture that's important that we see. 
because we see a, a, an old move of God overlapping with a new move of God. So we see John, while Jesus is affirming John, the whole reason that these disciples came to Jesus is because John is struggling with Jesus. John is having a hard time with Jesus' ministry. Now this is John, remember. This is the one who first introduced Jesus to the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who recognized the anointing and the ministry that Messiah was going to have. And John said, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. This is the one who, he's the one who Jesus came to and said, I need to be baptized by you. And as John baptized him, it says that the, he saw the heavens open. He saw the dove descend. He heard the voice of God speak. This is John the Baptist who, who had all of this understanding of Messiah, but now it's the same John the Baptist, and he's saying, are, are you really the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? What, what changed? What's going on here that seems like such a, a, a change from where he was, what his position was, and, and why is this, one, this man who, who introduced the Messiah now questioning if he was the Messiah. And I think simply it comes down to the reality that John had certain expectations. John was this fiery, no-nonsense preacher that was doing the work of the Lord. He was walking in his anointing. But he had a certain expectation of Messiah. Remember, John also prophesied and said that, that Messiah is going to come and he's going to baptize you with fire. And I think John thought that Jesus was going to come and just be like a, a, a bigger version of himself, a better version of himself, an expanded version of his ministry, that he was going to continue, that he was going to, he prophesied he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that fit within John's MO and his style of preaching. But Jesus comes along and he's preaching peace. And he's going around healing and touching people. And he's going around and he's talking and preaching more about blessing than he is about judgment. And John doesn't get it. This, this, he didn't see this new, this was a new move of God in the earth because he was stuck on a previous move of God. He didn't understand that this is really, even though he said, I must decrease so he can increase, he didn't understand the full import of this moment, that there was a conclusion taking place and there was an initiation of something brand new taking place. We see in John and Jesus the fulfillment of the old covenant and the establishment of the new covenant. We see the conclusion and fulfillment and satisfying in Christ of the, the covenant of law. And we see ushered in the covenant of grace in this scripture that we look at. And John illustrates the point for me that the greatest hindrance to a new move of God often is the previous move of God. He couldn't catch it. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't quite get there to understand that this, in fact, was God, just as much as his anointing and ministry was the move of God, that, that what Jesus was doing and saying to the earth was equally a move of God, but it was a new move of God. It was a fresh move of God. We hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, and he's referring to the old covenant. And then he says, but I say, there's a new move. 
There's something new that I'm bringing. There's something fresh that I'm... And, and the Pharisees just couldn't get it. The Pharisees wouldn't get it. They were stuck on a past move of God. They were stuck on a previous move of God. And they thought that, that defined who God was and how he would always move and act and operate. And so they couldn't receive when Messiah comes and says, you've heard it said, but now I say. The apostle Paul was so convinced before he was an apostle, when we knew him as Saul, he was so convinced that he was doing the work of the Lord based on a past move, a former move, a previous move of God. He was so certain that his going around and stomping out this group of Christians was the right thing to do until... He's on the road to Damascus until God shines a light from heaven and blinds him so that he would be able to see this is a new move of God. That, Paul, you've been pushing and promoting and trying to defend and protect an old move of God when I'm doing something brand new. And his greatest hindrance to the new was the old. Listen, the greatest hindrance to a fresh move of God in our life isn't the pressure of the world around us. It's not that gnarly guy at work that just drives us crazy. It's, it's not that person who hurt us or said this or didn't do that. It, that. That is not what's our greatest hindrance of the move of God. It's how God has moved in the past in our life. It's how God has operated and moved historically in your life. See, any place that we think this is how God did it, so this is how God's going to continue to do it. We're stuck. We can stymie a, a fresh move of God in our life because we're stuck in how God did it. We're stuck in a former move of God. This is, how it, this is what it looked like, so that's what it's going to always look like. This is how it felt, so I'm trying to feel that way again. This is what it sounded like, and so if something sounds new or different, it can't be a move of God. Because of the former move of God, it hinders and can limit us. You know, do you ever wonder why in Scripture did Jesus heal people so many different ways? Some he, he touched, some he just spoke to, some he put clay on their eyes, some he, he spat in their eyes, some he stuck his fingers in their ears, and, and some, some he healed and wasn't even, they weren't even present. He just sent his word ahead. I think Jesus did it specifically because he knows if he did anything the same way twice, we'd make it a doctrine. <laughs> we'd say, well, this is, this is how he did it, so this is the only way it can be done. And, and, and we get stuck. And, and when we get stuck, then God wants to move and bring newness and freshness in our lives, but he can't because we can only see it one way. We're only open one way. Can I tell you something? God is more than you've known him to be. Do you understand that? God is more than, you know, than you've known him to be. Listen, he will always do more, but not always more of the same. And if we're expecting him to move, but he's going to move in more of the same way, we may miss what he's trying to do in our lives, what he's trying to say in our lives. In fact, I would suggest that it's a bit of a problem. There should be a caution going off inside of us if God is moving in your life today the same way he did 
five years ago. Ten years ago or 25 years ago. I would be concerned about that. Do you remember Paul's admonishment to the early Christians? Listen, guys, this should be time that you're supposed to be teachers, but you're just wanting to be taught again. This is time where you should be, you should be consuming meat of the Word of God, but you're just wanting to be fed milk. It's not a good sign when we see sameness in our relationship with the Lord as opposed to His moving, His flowing, the, the unfolding. We should be see, seeing and experiencing, and there should be things God is trying to get through to you. And you, maybe you don't even have the full picture yet, but you have that sense that God's trying to teach you something new about himself. That should be an ongoing, because God is more than we've known him to be, and he loves to reveal himself. So he's always trying to show us more and bring us to more. But it won't be more of the same. And he controls that. He determines that. My second point. A fresh move requires a fresh view. God already spoke that to us prophetically today with some of what Pastor Jeremy said. That he's, he's the I am. He is sufficient. He's everything we need for everything that there is. Sometimes a fresh move requires a fresh view, a fresh view of God. See, John the Baptist's view of God was set. He had a certain picture of who Messiah was supposed to be, and it hindered him from receiving God's movement in the moment at that time. And then we can go into Genesis, or into Exodus, rather, and we see Moses, and he's all about a fresh view of God. He's all over that. God is threatening because of the people's waywardness. God calls them stiff-necked. That's an indictment calls them stiff-necked, and God's saying, because of that, I'm afraid I'm going to destroy them if I keep traveling with you, so I'm not going to go with you. God was saying, I'm not going to move anymore. I'm not going to move with you anymore. And Moses is pleading with the Lord, and he gives this utterance, show me your glory. Now think about who this is. This is Moses. Moses has seen God move. Moses has seen the glory and the majesty of God. Moses stood at a bush that was burning but not being consumed, and he heard the voice of God speak to him. Moses saw and was instrumental in in, um, unfolding the ten plagues that led to the freedom of the the nation of Israel. Moses saw the, the Red Sea open. Moses tasted the manna that came every day. He ate of the quail that was provided by God. He drank of the water that came out of a rock. Moses knew the move of God. He had seen God move more than most. But what I love about Moses here is he's not satisfied. He's not content with how God moved yesterday. He knew that there's more. He knew that even though he had this unbelievable view of God and experience of the movements of God, he wanted more. He knew that God hadn't exhausted himself. And he's saying, show me your glory. I'm going to say this, the next statement, the way God told to me. Sometimes I'm not sure why God speaks to me the way he does, but maybe because, I don't know, I need pictures or something. But I'm, I'm meditating on this, saying, God, what, what does this mean for us? What, what's, how can I make this applicable to our situation? 
And God impressed me this statement. When we stop asking, show me your glory, we turn him, Jesus, into a museum Messiah. When we stop asking him to show us more of himself, to move in our lives, we turn him into a museum Messiah. We stop actively reaching for his next move, expecting, desiring something new and fresh. And we begin to treat him as a priceless treasure. We don't mistreat him. We don't ignore him. We don't deny him. We don't walk, don't walk away from him. But we begin to treat him as, as this museum messiah. We stop expecting anything new. We're, we become content with how much of him we have and we know. We come together. And we gaze on his beauty. We stand in awe of his being. We're, we're humbled by his presence and the thought of him. We, we're in reverence of, of his majesty and of his, of his wonder. We're overcome with a sense of peace and joy and contentment. We exalt his greatness and his power. As we gather, we encourage one another and say, look at our God. Look at our God. If we're bold enough to share our faith, we invite others and say, come and see our God. And it's all good. And it's all wonderful. And he deserves every ounce of praise and worship and adoration that we could muster up. And, and I love those moments. And they're, they're, they're vital. They're important. And I pray we continue. I hope if we've learned nothing from this past year and a half that the gathering of the body is, is vital and crucial. The problem with a museum Messiah is this. It's not what we're doing, but it's the limitation that we place on him. Unknowingly, unexpectedly, not intentionally, but we put a limitation on him. I looked up a number, and I was really amazed by it. There's 10.2 million visitors that go to the Louvre Museum every year in Paris. 10.2, I wasn't ready for that number. I figured it'd be, you know... Tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, but 10.2 million. I meant to do the math to figure out what that breaks down on a daily basis, but I forgot, so you can do it on your own. And all of them, predominantly, will stop and view the Mona Lisa. They'll stop. That's one of the biggest draws. 10.2 million people stop to view the Mona Lisa. And I promise you this. None of them expect her to move. <laughs> Pretty sure that's true. They pay great homage to this priceless masterpiece. Every time they come, if they've come more than it's just, it's this overwhelming experience. They're 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 excited. There's an, something that happens inside them every time they come, but their view of her never changes. She's exactly how they saw her the last time they came. She remains exactly where they left her the last time they were together. They know exactly what to expect of her the next time they see her. And inadvertently, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing with the Lord. We come and we view him in our churches or in our quiet time with him. We honor him with great sincerity. We, we worship and we adore him, and it's real, and I'm not diminishing or putting that down in any way. But we have to ask ourselves a question when we gather. Is there also this anticipation, desire, drive 
to see more of him, to see him in ways we've never seen him before, that he would show us a new view of himself. I'm not sure that's always the case. I'm, I confess with myself that's not always my motivation and hasn't always been every time that I come before the Lord. But I want it to be. See, because for that, to have that expectation, that means I have to be willing to change. I have to be willing for change to take place because it's life-changing to get a fresh view of God. It's life-changing when he reveals himself in a way we've never seen him before. Jacob is running away from his brother Esau because Esau has threatened to kill him. And on his way, he goes to sleep and he has this dream and he sees a ladder that extends from heaven to earth and angels are walking up and down and he hears the voice of the Lord saying, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac, his father and his grandfather. And and he renews with Jacob his covenant. He, He renews the covenant he had made with Abraham and now he says, through Jacob. And he promises God promises his presence and his provision, his protection, his posterity all unfolds and Jacob awakens with this new view and he says, the Lord is in this place and I didn't see it before. I didn't know it before and Jacob's life was changed. He was going to return to this same place years later, a totally new man, a completely different perspective and understanding of life. Why? Because he saw a new view of the God who loved him. Isaiah, in the sixth chapter, sees this new view of God high and lifted up, his presence filling everything. He saw the activity of sights and sounds that are happening around the throne of God. He hears the angelic praises. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He gets this new view, and this new view changes him. It shakes him to his core. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And God says, I have this message that I need to deliver to my people. And suddenly, not only with this new view, he accepts a new commission. He says, here I am. Send me. His life was forever changed because he got a new view of God. John the Apostle is on the Isle of Patmos, and he gets this new view of the Son of Man in a long robe and a golden sash and white hair like snow and eyes that flame like fire and feet that look like polished bronze. And he hears the sound of his voice. It sounds like the rushing of many waters. It says John fell at his feet like he was dead. A fresh view of God is life-changing. A fresh view of the move of God in our lives. Sometimes we don't press in because we're afraid of it. A little nervous about that. Sort of like the way it is. I like knowing what I know and seeing what I see. And this could upset the apple cart if I press in too hard because I'm not sure, God, what you're going to do. You're God. Which means you're going to do anything you want to do. And, and so we sometimes are, not even consciously, we're hesitant to even seek a new view, a fresh view of God. When's the last time God showed himself to you in such a way that caused you to just fall down before him? Where you felt like you're afraid to move, you're afraid to speak, you're afraid to breathe because it's 
His presence was so overwhelming. His revelation of himself to you was so real that it, it went to your core of your being and changed you. I contend today that we need a fresh view of God. Because we won't see a new move if we don't see first a fresh view. Our attention's been way too diverted. We spent over a year looking at other things. We've spent over a year looking at pandemic numbers, looking at visions, videos of division and unrest and anger and hatred and uncertainty and, and insecurity. We've been looking at all the things we've been looking at. And we need a fresh view of God in this moment, in this time. In our lives, we need to see God because a fresh view of him will put everything else in the right perspective. A fresh view of him will give, will give direction for where we are. A fresh view of him will strengthen and encourage the hearts of men and women. And without a fresh view of him, we can be overcome by what we see around us. Listen, we need to take him out of the museum. God is on the move. He's not stationary. He's not silent. He's a God who moves. He's a God who's active. He's the majestic Messiah. He's the conquering Christ. He's the saving Savior. He's the radical Redeemer. That's not a quiet God. That's not a museum Messiah. That's a God who's active and moving in your life. And we need a fresh view of him today. We need to see him. We need to be crying out every day like Moses. God, show me your glory. That needs to be a daily prayer from your heart. God, show me your glory. And then be looking. Then be looking. My last point. I'm probably like way crazy, right? Are, are we okay? All right. God's moving will always be marked by his goodness. When God moves, his goodness follows. Moses asked, God, show me your glory. And know what I love about God? He didn't question. He didn't argue. He, he, just, he just went with it. He says, okay, I'll show you all my goodness. Isn't that interesting? Moses asked for, to see God's glory, and God says, I'll show you my goodness. There's an important reality there. That from our perspective, what does God's glory look like to us? His goodness. Wherever you see the goodness of God, you're seeing his glory. You're witnessing his glory. When God moves, we'll see things that are signs of his goodness. When God moves, we'll see in fresh ways his mercy, his grace. We'll see strength and power and love and protection and provision and, pro and presence and compassion and guidance and faithfulness and long-suffering and things on and on and on and on. We'll see his goodness unfold. We'll see his goodness come about in our lives. I can't imagine what Moses saw. As we read that account, I, I can't really imagine, but I'm going to try and just quickly, in a couple of minutes, pull just a couple practical observations. God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. See, God's not stingy with his goodness. We sometimes think we have to beg God to be good. We have to plead with God to do good. And we don't because if everything God does is good. He is only good all of the time, and he's not stingy. He said, I'll make all my goodness, not some, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And, he'll, and he affirms his name. 
that's what Pastor Jeremy was talking about through the Holy Spirit today, admonishing us that God has a name to I am. He'll reveal his name and you'll see his goodness in your situation, in your circumstance. As he shows himself, you'll see him as great and glorious and awesome and wonderful and powerful. God will move in such a way that there's no other explanation except to say that's God. You ever had those things in your life, those moments in your life, those experiences with him where you look back at it and say, God really did move. Because there's no other explanation. He'll move in such a way where no one else can get the credit because there's no other way to define what just took place except to say, God did it. God moved. And we know it was him because look at all the markers of goodness. Look at the trail of goodness that we can see. It goes on, he says, you can't see my face. Listen, there's dimensions of God you can't handle. You can't see my face because you, can't ha- you couldn't handle it. You can't see my face. And he knows what those dimensions are. And it varies from person to person. The Bible says he showed Israel his acts, but he showed Moses his ways. See, Moses could handle more than what Israel could. God shows us as much of himself as we can handle, as much of himself as we're willing to pursue, as we're willing to accept. He will continually show himself more and more. He delights to do that. He desires to show himself more in your life, but it'll always be proportioned to what you can handle because he gives you too much, you can't handle it. 